0: Well, welcome everyone, uh, it's great to see all of you here, uh, for those uh, who made an effort, especially the whole DG coming together, uh, that's wonderful, right? And we want to welcome all those who are tuning in online, uh, it's wonderful to have you listen to God's word, and we pray that you will have a blessed time uh, with us today. And the best way to follow the sermon is really to have your Bibles open, because we are going to cover, uh, especially as we have to cover about four chapters, yeah, and we will uh, we won't be touching on everything, but at least some in uh, every chapter. So if your Bible is open and you find it helpful, you can also go, into, go to the e-bulletin found on our website, and you have the outline over there. Now, one of the most exciting things uh, for parents is the choosing of a, of a name for their children. Right? And how do parents choose their children's name? Now, for some, it could be to choose a name that is so unique that nobody else has. For others, right, they name their children after famous people, favorite uh, celebrities or beloved family members. Perhaps they hope that their children will take after these people whom they have named after. But in most cases, parents choose names that reflect their hopes and wishes their children. So when my wife, Meisin, was uh, pregnant with our first child, uh, she has constant spotting. Now, For those who do not know, uh, there is constant light vaginal bleeding during pregnancy. Now that worried us quite a fair bit, uh, especially when we were first-time parents. We did not know if uh, the pregnancy will be viable. Well, but thanks to our cool and chill gynecologist, uh, Elder Adrian Tan, he reminded us that all life is in God's hands. And in God's grace, uh, the fetus continued to grow till the baby was born. And in light of that, we decided to name our girl Caris. Now, Caris comes from a Greek word, charis, which means grace or gift. Now, it is by God's grace that she was born. And at the same time, we pray and hope that God will continue to shower His grace on her so that she will know the Lord Jesus and then be gracious to others as well. We also gave her a Chinese name, which also reflects our hopes and our desires for her. We named Karis Jing Rou in Chinese. Now, the word Jing in her name is in, a, in hope that she will fear God and also be a respectful person. Then the role in her name is our desire that she will acquire a gentle spirit. Now we are still waiting for those hopes to be fulfilled. Well, in our passage today, we will see a lot of names names of people, names of places. See, the names reflect the hopes, the desires, the destiny, and the circumstances of the people who gave the names. Now, we see that very early in the children born to Jacob by his wives. Each of his children's names tell us so much about the desires and the struggles of Leah and Rachel. However, God's word does not merely want to tell us about the struggles. His word wants to tell us how we can overcome our struggles. So that is what we want to learn from our passage today. How do we overcome our struggles? Now, firstly, we are to overcome our struggles by turning to our God who is compassionate and gracious. Now, we see that in the struggles in the family between Leah and Rachel. Now we know from the previous passage or previous sermon that Jacob was deceived by Laban into marrying Leah. However, Jacob loved Rachel and was willing to work for another seven years in order to marry Rachel. But in comparison to Jacob's love for Rachel, Leah was considered unloved or hated. Now, that's a very sad situation, isn't it? And God saw that, and he opened Leah's womb in his compassion for her. And then on one hand, the names of the first three sons, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, they tell us that their births are a result of God's compassion for her. But on the other hand, their names also showed Leah's hope and her desire for her husband's affection. She hoped that having three sons will make Jacob love her and be attached to her. But sadly, they did not. Leah remained hated in comparison. Now that seemed to have, and she seemed to have changed her tone by the time Leah bore her fourth child, Judah. In the name, we don't have any indication or hope for Jacob's affection. She just wants to praise the Lord for giving her four sons. Has she given up? Has she resigned to her fate? We do not know. But she's at least thankful to God for granting her that many sons. And then in chapter 30, verse 1, it tells us that Rachel saw that Leah bore, uh, that she bore no children for Jacob And then she became envious of Leah. And so what did she do after that? Well, she first berated her husband. Go to Jacob, demanded him to give her children. However, Jacob knew better. His reply was closer to the truth. He knew that it is only God who can open or close wombs, and not simply by human's will or actions. So in response, Rachel took the second step and offered her servant Bilhah to Jacob. She followed the bad playbook of her grandmother-in-law. Without children of her own, she was hoping to adopt children via Bilhah. And then we have a passive husband there who just agreed to whatever the wife says. None of them are learning from the bad experience of Sarah and Hagar. Nonetheless, Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Rachel gave him the name Dan, which sounds like judged or vindicated. In the eyes of Rachel, she deemed this son as an answer to her prayers. But she she actually has resorted to her own methods and her own devices instead of trusting God, trusting God's timing and trusting God's purposes. And what was all this for? We can tell from the name of the next son, Naphtali, which sounds like wrestling. So Rachel thought that the birth of yet another son, Trubuhar, showed that she had warned her sister. In her mighty wrestling or struggles with her sister, Rachel thought she has come out tops. See, her desire for children wasn't for anyone else. And neither was it to fulfill God's promises. Her desire was to win. She wanted to avoid shame and to be recognized. She is not going to concede defeat. But two can play the same game. If Rachel can do it, Leah can do it too. In chapter 30, verse 9, when Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she gave her servant Zilpah to Jacob as wife too. And then two more sons were born to her, to Zilpah. This time, Leah recognizes that these two sons are good fortune and happiness. And both names have connotations of being lucky. So if they were Chinese, right, their names would be Ahuat and Ahing, right? But they're not. But what you can see is Jacob is no longer the focus; the children have become her happiness and her pride. And that's, and then we see this uh, section from verse fourteen verse to verse sixteen, which is a bit strange, you know, where Rachel traded a knight you know, of uh, with Jacob for mandrakes. Now we often heard about sex for grades or sex for favors. However, in this account, we have mandrakes for sex instead. Now, for the sake of those who uh, do not know, these mandrakes are uh, understood in the ancient world, has plants that enhances a woman's sexual and child-bearing abilities. And that is why Rachel is willing to trade with her bitter rival. But I wonder what this deal makes of Jacob. They have turned Jacob from a person of affection to an object to gain an advantage in a cat fight. She has become, he has become an item on their home-based carousel, payable only by Mandrix. Ironically, this deal is a bad one for Rachel, but a great one for Leah. Leah landed up getting another child from this one-night sex trade. And later on, she even had two more. But Rachel remained childless, even with the help of Mandrix. But finally, in verse 22, God remembered Rachel and listened to her. Rachel's womb was opened and she bore a child. So with this child, with this son, Rachel feels that God has finally taken away her reproach. Her shame is taken away. And she hopes for another son. And thus this son is named Joseph, which sounds like taken away, but yet has the meaning of, may he add. As we know it, she did bear another son, Benjamin. But she died shortly after. Now let us think for a moment what this struggle, this struggle between the two sisters and the two wives in the family tell us. I think there are three lessons for us here. Well, firstly, God is a sovereign God who keeps His promises over and above our mistakes and our sin. Now as we can tell from this passage, nothing changes without the Lord. It is God who opens and closes wombs. The human schemes and the methods do not change things. Yet God will triumph over them all. Even though the failings of his people, and even through it all, God fulfilled his promises to give Abraham and Jacob descendants that will be as many as the sand on the seashore. And from these 12 sons of Jacob will come tribes and clans that will become a great nation as we know it. However, God's people can sometimes be so overwhelmed by their own personal struggles, their own desires, that they cannot see the outworking of God's purposes. Caught in their own little bubble and their own unfulfilled dreams and desires, God's people may not be seeing what God is doing in and through us for his glory. But secondly, God is not just a big picture sovereign God, but he's also a personal, compassionate and gracious God. See, when he saw that Leah was unloved and hated, he opened a womb to bring comfort to her. See, we read many times in this passage about God's listening and answering the prayers and the cries of his people. And even after many years of fights and struggles between Leah and Rachel, God remembered Rachel and opened her womb as well. So some of us may be asking whether God's intervention helped the situation. Did God create more problems between the two? So that brings us to our third lesson. The problem was not created by God. See, the problem problem was Rachel's and Leah's sinfulness. It was their relentless pursuit and desires to be loved, to be recognized by others that caused all the problems. See, when we read this passage, when God saw and heard their struggles, God graciously answered their prayers and intervened to comfort. But when Rachel saw Leah giving birth to four sons, she was filled with envy, filled with jealousy. Rachel cannot stand it. Her own jealousy got the better of her. The problem was not her sister's childbirth. And when Leah saw Rachel, having two sons via Bilhah, she too gave her servant to Jacob as a wife. That's the difference. When God sees, He responds in compassion. When sinful human beings see, they respond in sin. And even when God showed compassion and granted them their requests, their response, as we see in their names, is often one of self-gratification and pride. Isn't it true for us too, when we see the careers, the grades, the spouse, the children, the houses, the cars of our peers, our siblings, and cousins? We may rejoice with them momentarily, but we often get a sense of envy, especially when we have less. It may even rouse a sinful desire of discontentment to up the game and to be better than others. We have problems rejoicing in the success and blessing of others. But my friends, there will be no end to this. This is basically idolatry, because we pursue something or someone as ultimate, thinking that these things will fully satisfy us. But they will prove to be broken systems that cannot hold water. You'll be like drinking Coke when you are superly thirsty. It may give you a kick, but you become even thirstier after. And we'll remember a similar situation when Jesus met the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. Right? She has five husbands and the man she is with is not even her husband. She has been pursuing satisfaction and security in relationships, but she has shame instead. But Jesus offers her something better. He offers her himself, the living water that brings eternal life. He is the only one who can take away our sin, our shame, and gives us the satisfaction that we are created and saved for. An intimate relationship with our Creator and Lord. So my friends, do not pursue and do not trade for the temporal and dissatisfying things of the world. So we come back to our question that we want to answer today. How do we overcome our struggles? See, when we struggle for affection and acceptance, we must recognize the sin in us and to turn to our compassionate God and our Lord Jesus Christ, who can ultimately satisfy. Now, while the wives struggle with each other, Jacob struggled with his boss, who happens to be his father-in-law as well. By the time Joseph was born, Jacob has worked 14 years for Laban right, as a greed for his two wives. Uh, and his family is big now with 11 sons and a daughter. But she does not have, he does not have much as his own possessions. So he asked Laban to let him go and let his family go back to, the, to Canaan, right, his own home and his own land. So basically, his colleague quits. It's a resignation from the job. But a crafty Laban, he knows that Jacob is too good an employee to lose. Because both Jacob and Laban, they knew that Laban grew prosperous from little because of Jacob. That itself is a fulfillment of God's promise that others will be blessed through the descendants of Abraham. So what will Laban do? well, he offered Laban to name his wages to continue to work for him. Now, that's not very different from uh, our HR policies today, isn't it? Because many companies, you know, such as auditing firms, they tend to tangle a juicy package to entice employees to stay with them after the first few years of employment. For they know that many will be looking for better pastures after that. And some bosses may also offer, offer their you know their treasured employees a bumper contract or promotion when they tender their resignation, and then half the time you wonder why they didn't do it earlier. But back to Jacob, he asks for a strange deal. A strange deal in this new contract negotiation. Jacob and his family likes to make deals, don't you think? They but he asked for a strange one. He asked for the spotted and the speckled sheep, and the black lambs for wages. They are the rarer ones and hence smaller in numbers, and they are also possibly the less valued ones. Now, that sounds like a great deal for Laban. Very little to lose, a lot to gain. Now, it's better than any of our 11-11 sale. So he agreed to the terms. But at the same time, he took away all these kinds of animals from the flock and put his sons in charge of them. So Jacob only has those, those monocolored flock to pasture. And then he took further steps to reduce the number or uh, the chance of Jacob breeding these spotted and speckled animals. How? He put a three-day distance between him and Jacob. That means there's no chance that all the multicolored flock that Laban's son has will mix with Jacob's monocolored ones. So the chances of producing multicolored flock from purely monocolored ones are huge. No chance. Humanly speaking, it is impossible. But Jacob came out with the most ancient genetic engineering method, right? He came up with this totally innovative idea to breed spotted and speckled animals. In a nutshell, he made the monocoloured flocks look at striped branches when they drink and they mate. And voila, they will produce multicoloured flocks. Now, AVA should employ such talent, do you think? Is it even possible? Now, as far as I know, this matter has not been replicated in the world. So how did it happen? Well, we have a clue of it in chapter 31. See, Jacob revealed to his wife that God has intervened and stopped Laban from harming him, despite him changing his wages ten times. He then saw in a dream mating flocks producing striped and spotted offspring. Now, God didn't tell him to make the flock look at striped branches when they mate. So it was probably Jacob's own idea. But whatever it is, God is clearly behind this extraordinary feat. God and not Jacob is the one who made monocolored flocks produce multicolored ones. See, God not only can open wombs, but he can even determine what comes out from the womb. However, the second bit of the selective breeding was Jacob's own initiative. He bred the stronger flock, multicolored, and left the weaker ones, monocolored, for Jacob. And guess what? The very scheme of Laban to keep a 3 days' distance has worked to the advantage of Jacob. Being so far away, Jacob could do all this selective breeding of spotted animals without being spotted. No pun intended there. So for once, for once, Jacob outsmarted Laban in his struggle with him. Laban thought that the 11-11 sale and the deal that he got there was a good one. But it turned out really bad. And there's no return policy. In this struggle with his boss, Jacob has truly lived up To his name. So, one commentator, Fokuman, he says this well Jacob was a deceiver. Laban was the deceiver of a deceiver. But Jacob became the deceiver of a deceiver of a deceiver. He really lived up to his name. He is the ultimate deceiver, even though he is slightly better this time round, because he played according to the rules of the deal. And after six years, Jacob accumulated a huge amount of livestock, possessions, and servants. And then he decided to flee from Laban with his family. And despite Laban chasing him down, God appeared to Laban in a dream and prevented him from harming Jacob. So Jacob won in the end. He overcame his struggle. Now, as we can see, the chief reason for overcoming this struggle with Laban is because God is on his side. And Laban knew that. See, in his, almost his last verbal fight with uh, Laban, Jacob said this in chapter 31, verse 42. He said to Laban, If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. So what does this tell us? It tells us that God is a God who sees. God is a God who brings justice to his people. There is no need, no need to employ deception, no need to have schemes like what Jacob did. It wouldn't have worked if it wasn't for the fact that God overruled to bring about His justice for His people. See, God intervenes to protect His people. He will avenge them. And in the end, God fulfills His promises again to bless Abraham's descendants. Not only did He give Jacob many, many descendants, but He also gave him many, many blessings. So what might that mean for us? some of us here, we may be struggling with injustice. You may be experiencing some kind of bullying at work, in school, in the army, or anywhere else. Colleagues, schoolmates, or army mates may just gang up against you for no good reason. Or perhaps you have been cheated by some scammer or bad business partners. Or you may have also shown kindness to others, but they bite back at you instead, causing you lots of grief and pain. How do you overcome that? Our passage on Jacob and Laban's conflict tells us that when we struggle with injustice, we must trust in God who is on our side, and He will bring justice for His people. And the Apostle Paul Teaching in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, affirms that as well. Allow me to read that for you. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. See, my brothers and sisters in Christ, we are not to take personal vengeance because judgment is God's role, it's not ours. Moreover, God's judgment will be just and right because He knows that He knows every deed, every intention, every motive, every thought. However, God doesn't always deliver his people in every unjust situation, or at least not immediately. Well, Jacob has to suffer the injustice for 20 years. But in the end, my friends, everyone will have to give an account to him. No one escapes, hence we need not worry that our offender will go scot-free. He or she will be punished in the time to come, and is far worse standing before the infinitely holy and just God. However, judgment from God is not only confined to the future. As the next chapter of Romans, if you go and read it, It tells us that one of the ways God judges and maintains justice in this present world is by his appointed institutions and authorities. So if you face, you are facing unjust situations and evil people, you can turn to the rightful institutions and people. Your teachers, your parents, uh, your bosses, police, and the law courts. Now they might still fail us at times, but God has placed them there to address injustice now. But ultimately, we await the day when Jesus comes again and He will make all things right. And our Lord Jesus knew that. He knew that in His earthly life. He was innocent, innocent of all accusations thrown against Him and He did only what was good. However, the pride, the jealousy of the people caused Jesus to be arrested, abused, and killed on the cross. And even so, he did not retaliate to such injustice. Jesus did not repay evil with evil. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to God the Father who judges justly. And his death was able to save all those who believed in him. His good overcame evil in the end. So how do, we overcome? how do we overcome our struggles? Firstly, when we struggle for affection and struggle for acceptance, we must recognize the sin in us and turn to our compassionate God and our Lord Jesus who can ultimately satisfy. But secondly, when we struggle with injustice, we entrust ourselves to our just God who will right all wrongs and bring justice. And the last struggle we will read from this passage is his struggle with his brother Esau. Now we know from Genesis 27 that the main reason Jacob fled to Laban was because Esau said that he's going to kill Jacob at some point. So as Jacob is about to re-enter Canaan, he must be struggling with fear. In his grace and his compassion, God assured him by sending angels to meet him. And just as how Jacob met God and the angels before leaving the land, he meets with angels when he re-enters the land. Uh, And it seems that God has shown him an army of angels because Jacob named the place as the camp of God. But was an army enough? Apparently not. Not enough assurance for Jacob. He went back to his default schemes and strategies to allay his fears. So in verses 3 to 5, he firstly sends messengers to Esau in hope of finding favor. In his message, he addresses Esau as his lord and himself as his servant. This is to humble himself before Esau. But more than that, Jacob seems to be relinquishing the blessing that Isaac bestowed on him. And then in in, uh, Genesis 27, verse 29, Isaac has given uh, Jacob the blessing of being the Lord over his brothers, and the people will serve him. But now Jacob is reversing this blessing by calling Esau his Lord, and himself as Esau's servant. Now this this, uh, self-deprecating message Did it work? Well, it doesn't seem so for Jacob. For Esau was on his way to meet Jacob with 400 men. That's quite a number. Now, I remember the time when uh, my school's basketball team, we uh, we went to play with another school's uh, basketball team, and the opponent's school has a very strong basketball tradition. So they brought a huge group of supporters to the match, and then we only have a few. And they came with such huge banners and all the musical instruments, and then using their drums, using their tambourines, they shouted their scooters with great gusto, right? And before we even played the match, they tried to intimidate us. Well, I do not know why Esau came up with 400 men to meet his brother, but that was surely intimidating, isn't it? If not, ambiguous. That sent Jacob on a panic mode. He was greatly afraid and distressed. So as a safeguard, he separated his family into two camps, right? thinking you know, at least one camp can escape if the other camp was attacked. But the best thing he did was to pray to God. In his prayer, Jacob called on God to be just as faithful as he was to his father Abraham and Isaac. He recognized his unworthiness, in receiving God's steadfast love and faithfulness, as he pleads for God to now deliver him from Esau. But as usual, Jacob was going to do more things to deal with his fear. He sent a huge gift of 550 animals to Esau. Now sometimes this is what you know, countries do, right? When they have bilateral meetings between head of uh, governments. they grant favours to each other, I release this prisoner, I give you this trade deal, in order to, as an act of goodwill, to smoothen relationships. But this is no small gift from Jacob. A gift of 550 animals was worthy to be an entire inheritance of any rich family. It is another way of telling Esau, I am giving back my blessings to you. So please be appeased by it when we meet face to face. So despite meeting angels, praying, Jacob was still not assured and continues to struggle with his fear. But it's all going to change in one night. He sent his family across the Yabok River, uh, which is one of the tributaries that will uh, will feed uh, the Jordan River. And then he was alone after that. And then a man wrestled with him until the breaking of dawn. See, the identity of the man wasn't known in the beginning. Coming in the night might be to conceal his identity. And then when the man saw that he wasn't able to prevail against Jacob, he touched Jacob's hip socket and dislocated it. And then he asked Jacob to let him go. But by now, Jacob knew that this man is no ordinary man, and perhaps divine. Otherwise, he would not be able to dislocate his uh, his hip just by a touch. And Jacob refused to let go unless this man bless him. But the man strangely asked Jacob for his name. Now, If this man is of some divine origin, he would know Jacob's name, isn't it? But the name of a person is not merely a name to call a person. As we have seen in the names of Jacob's son, the name describes the nature, the character, the circumstances, and sometimes even the destiny of the person. In this case, asking Jacob for his name or to make known his name, is for him to admit who he is. A deceiver. It's for him to confess what he has done. That is, taking the birthright of his brother deceitfully. All this time, Jacob has depended on his schemes, on his devices to get what he wanted. So when Jacob told the man his name, he was confessing. There he has been the deceiver who has not trusted in God to fully to deliver his promises. He has trusted in himself more than anything else. Then this man changed Jacob's name to Israel. This change of name signifies a change of character, a change of circumstances, a change of nature, and a change of destiny. So asking for Jacob's name is not for information. It's for transformation. God is going to change him, his character, his nature, and his destiny. And what is this change? The man explains, 32 verse 28. Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. See, the word striven here means to contend, to struggle, and to persist. That's pretty much Jacob's life. He struggled with trusting God to work out his purposes and fulfilled his promises. Yet, Jacob persisted and did not let go of God. So in the end, he won. He won this wrestling match. He has overcome and prevailed against God. But in what sense has he won? Surely the man that we now know is God would have defeated him if he wanted to, right? So it must be that God lets him win. God wanted to bless him by changing his life. And this new life is a life where he can trust that God will strive for him. You see, this is the actual meaning of the the word Israel or Israel. It means God strives or God fights. As Jacob contented and persisted with God in all his struggles, he can be assured, assured that God will fight for him in the end. And this promise of God has proven true. Because when Esau came with 400 men the next day, you know, it was solved. Jacob humbled himself and bowed before Esau seven times, again acknowledging that, he saw his Lord and him the servant. He was again trying to undo his deception. But Esau showed no animosity at all. Look at the verbs you know, in verse 4. Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. How is that possible after all that Jacob has done? It must be the work of God. God has done the work of softening Esau's heart. God has indeed fought for Jacob. Jacob prayed to be delivered from Esau, and God answered his prayers. He is now truly delivered. By the grace and the word of God, there is reconciliation between the brothers. However, Jacob did not join Esau as seer, Jacob returned to Canaan in obedience to God's command. And he later managed to even get a piece of land in Canaan, which is another marker of God's faithfulness in keeping his promises. As God fights for Jacob, he now has many descendants, great blessings, and now a piece of land in Canaan. In all this, Jacob acknowledges that it is God's work as he calls the place, El Elohi Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. He is the one who strives for Israel. What does that mean for us? Like Jacob, you and I have our fair share of fears. Fears that you will not do well enough in life. Fear that you have no friends. Fear that you will not get married. Fear that your children will lose out. Fear that there's no one to take care of you when you are old. These are all genuine fears. But we must not let our fears take control of us. We must not let our fears cripple us. God crippled Jacob to deal with his crippling fear. He is not to depend on himself in dealing with these fears, but to persist and rest in God's promises to strive for him. So similarly, my friends, when we struggle with fear, we must trust that God strives for us. And for us as Christians, God gives us a greater assurance In Romans chapter 8, verse 31 to 32, which we read at the start of the service. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God has given his precious only son to die for us, What will stop him from striving for us and providing for us? Nothing. Nothing can stop him. So, my friends, turn all your fears to the fear of God instead. What can others do to us when Jesus has already secured our eternal future with him? So, my brothers and sisters in Christ, Whatever your name is, whatever hopes you have, the dreams, the struggles that you have, please know that who you are now have fundamentally changed when you come to know the Lord. You are now known as His children, His beloved people, His bride. He will be for you. He will strive for you as you persevere in Him. And do not give up your eternal treasure by pursuing the treasures on this earth which cannot satisfy. For when you see God face to face one day, you will have a greater inheritance than Jacob or anyone else can imagine. And our Lord Jesus Christ is once again the ultimate example who perseveres in the Lord. He has endured the cross, despising his shame. He humbled himself, and was obedient to God even to death on the cross. And as a result, God gave him a name, a name that is above all other names, that every knee must bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. So Let us then look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, to help us win and overcome all our struggles. Let us pray. Our oh, Heavenly Father, we come humbly before you, confessing that we struggle with many things in life because of our sin, our fears, and our lack of faith. We want to thank you for your word that encourages us to turn to you when we struggle. For you are the compassionate, just, and faithful God who strives for us. May you etch upon our minds and our hearts that you who has given your only Son to us will not withhold anything good from us. So strengthen us, we pray, to be like the Lord Jesus, who trusted in you even in greater struggles than ours. And we await the day when you will return to put all things right, and give us the sweet and unhindered fellowship with you and with your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.